If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How is it that life expectancy for many across the globe has nearly doubled in the past century? That's the question at the centre of the Extra Life Project from Stephen Johnson, which includes a book and a new BBC4 series, presented alongside David Oloshoga. In today's episode, you'll be hearing more from Stephen on the scientific breakthroughs and public health innovations that have eradicated killer diseases or developed life-saving treatments, and have given us all an average of 20,000 extra days to live. Putting the questions to Stephen was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. We are talking today about what you call arguably the biggest story in human history, uh, which is how we doubled our life expectancy. And you've written a new book called Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer. And there's a television show, too, that's presented by yourself and David Olishoga and is airing on uh, BBC4 and PBS as well at the moment. Uh, and looking at these sort of scientific breakthroughs and the history of public health, it feels particularly apt given the global situation at the moment. And how did this project start? It's funny. Uh, this project has been in the works for for more than four years now. And when I originally came up with the idea, which I, I knew would be a book, and I was hopeful that we could put together a, a TV series um, to accompany it, I thought that it was an important story to tell because, in a sense, the progress that is measured in health and human lifespan 
um, is made up of these things that are so easy to forget because in a sense, the progress is measured by events that don't happen, right? The childhood disease you don't get at the age of two, the car accident that is a non-event because you're wearing a seatbelt that somebody invented, you know, in the 1960s. And so we forget how much progress we've made. We forget how deadly life was just a few generations ago. And I thought, you know, this is this. These are important stories to tell because there's still progress to be made, and we should remind ourselves that we're capable of these remarkable achievements. Um, and they're also great stories, right? They're really wonderful stories of people solving complicated mysteries and, uh, you know, and fighting the establishment and changing people's minds about complicated ideas. So I, I knew it was a rich kind of uh, bounty of of narrative potential, and it was an important story. And I thought four years ago, that the timing would be interesting because it would be the 100-year anniversary of the ending of the Spanish flu, the Great Influenza, which pretty much wraps up around 1920. So I thought this book and show will come out around 2020 or so, and that'll be a 100-year mark. And that's the last point at which you really saw a sustained global decline in overall life expectancy was during that period, from the end of the war into the into the Great Influenza. And so I thought, if it comes out in 2020, there'll be this perfect um, kind of historical symmetry to the to the timing. It turned out <laughs> that 2020 had totally different significance, um, and all of a sudden, you know, we were in the middle of this pandemic, the worst since the, the Spanish flu. I, I had largely written the book by by 2020. But the show we made entirely in the middle of the pandemic. Um, David and I shot. David shot it in in the UK, and I shot it in the US. And you know, the UK was in terrible lockdown, particularly when David was doing his thing. So it was very difficult to do. But it gave us the opportunity to tell a story that is largely a history story, but to tell it, you know, in the context of right now. I mean, I've, I've kind of come to think of this as a 200-year history of, of right now is basically what this project is, because so many of the themes that we're dealing with in terms of public health, in terms of changing your behavior to keep yourself safe, in terms of data, are just the cent- and, and of course, vaccines are really the central stories in the world right now. Right. And you just mentioned there some of the groupings that you've um, you kind of explore these innovations through. Could you give our listeners a sense of how these innovations are grouped together, both in your book and in your TV show? You know, I'd had this original idea um, at the very beginnings of the project that given. So, so the basic facts of it are that um, around 100 years ago, life expectancy around the world was about 35 to 40. Um, we don't know exactly what it was. Um, and today it's it's about 73. Um, and so we we basically doubled life expectancy. Now, just to explain something that's important to remember, a lot of that is from childhood mortality decreasing. So a lot of people used to die at five weeks or five months or five years. Um, throughout most of human history, 40% of all children would die um, before they reached adulthood. So childhood was the most dangerous part of your life, really, until you got very old. Um, but people are also living longer at the other end. Um, so an adult in 1850 who lived, made it to adulthood, his or her life expectancy would be about 60. Um, now it's 85. So we, we have added both younger people are not dying nearly as much and older people are living longer. So all that is to say that my initial idea was maybe you could quantify the, the actual innovations and say, of let's say if we got an extra 35 years of life, six years of that came from vaccines. And... 
four years of that came from antibiotics. And you could really like chart the impact of each innovation. And that just turned out to be impossible to do. They're, 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 it, you, you just can't run a simulation of the history of the world and figure out what, you know, what would have happened had vaccines not been invented. Um, but you can do it kind of on a level of order of magnitude. And that's what I tried to do is, is basically divide it up. The book has eight chapters that try and talk about each of the kind of eight most important breakthroughs. Um, the, sh the show basically has four, um, and we hope to make more of them to, to, because there's so much more to be said about it. Um, but the, in, the, in the show, we look at vaccines, which is really the beginning of the story of improvements in human health. It's the smallpox vaccine and a technique that came before it, variolation, which we can talk about. Um, and then uh, the, the real medical breakthrough in terms of medical drugs, which is penicillin and antibiotics, which is a fascinating story. Uh, and then data, which is surprisingly underappreciated. Um, we solved a lot of important problems um, without actually needing pills or vaccines or hospitals, just by looking at patterns of data and realizing what was causing people to get sick and um, and changing things like cleaning the water supply, um, which didn't involve hospitals, it involved public health infrastructure. Um, and then finally, in, in, in the, the series on TV, this isn't a chapter in the book, we, we look at behavior changes, which are so important. So things like washing your hands and wearing a mask during a pandemic, um, that was something we added in the COVID context because it was so, so so apparent in you know April of last year that that was a major theme that we needed to explore. Yes, there are so many touchstones there that I think audiences and readers will find absolutely fascinating. Uh, and not to skip us ahead too far, but um, something I thought was a really interesting factor is the highlighting beyond the, the scientific and medical advances um, is the innovation and effort to distribute, to collaborate on large scales, to you know treat and ultimately eradicate um, things that have been killing people for hundreds of years. That's just as impressive. Yeah, I, a major theme of both the show and the book is that while science and medical advances are crucial, and and it, it is certainly a project that celebrates the, the the importance of science in society, science on its own is not enough, and you need to take the ideas that come out of science and apply them at scale um, for them to make a difference. Um, and that involves a different set of talents, right? It involves people who are activists and evangelists for these ideas. It involves legal reformers um, in some cases. It, it involves people who are just influential, um, being influencers, I suppose, <laughs> we would say now. <laughs> um, and, and they're an important part of the story, too. And, and so, you know, the best example of this is, which I think is probably surprising to a lot of people, is pasteurization. Um, so one of the things that I, I found fascinating doing the research for this project is just how deadly milk was in the middle of the 19th century in big cities um, like New York, where I live, um, in part just because there was no refrigeration, um, so milk would spoil, you, would, you, you could get tuberculosis from milk. Um, you know, it was, it was a, a major problem. And in New York in, in the 1850s, 60% of all deaths were children. Um, so it gives you some measure of how dangerous childhood was at that point, and, and milk was one of the big killers. So this is a case study in, in this idea that science is on its own, not enough, which is that Louis Pasteur, pioneering chemist, um, comes up with the technique of pasteurization, which by heating milk, um, you know, 130 degrees, it, it 
becomes say if you kill off whatever bacteria germs are in the in the milk um, he comes up with that technique in 1865 but we don't have pasteurized milk on the shelves in american cities until 1915 it takes 50 years for this life-saving idea to make a difference and that's because it wasn't just enough to come up with the idea you had a whole amazing kind of protest movements fighting for pasteurized milk and this department store magnate named Nathan Strauss, who owned the Macy's department store, who in the middle of his career decided to become the huge, you know, uh, advocate for pasteurized milk, um, funding all these campaigns to get people to drink it and convince the milk industry to to start pasteurizing and for laws to pass and things like that. So it's almost like a uh, uh, in some ways, a movement closer to, you know, the suffrage movement or the abolition of slavery or something like that. It's not just a bunch of scientists in, in lab coats. Right. Uh, and you mentioned these kind of um, evangelists and the, the campaigns to get these all of these innovations kind of into more of the mainstream. But I thought it was quite interesting or very interesting um, that concerns and even misinformation regarding some of these advances are really nothing new. Um, and, and what sort of pushbacks have there been historically? Um, I mean, what examples are there? You've already given one. Well, uh, you know, the most telling one, because we're in the middle of it right now, is the anti-vax movement. Um, so anti-vax movements are as old as as vax. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, as soon as you had vaccination as a, a, as a viable uh, public health practice, um, there were people who were you know, vehemently opposed to it, um, and I think I think it's probably fair to say that the anti-vax movement in the in the 19th century was was even bigger than it is um, in the 21st century. And I think that that you know, vaccines are close to a, a kind of a singular health intervention, um, and they there's a there's on some level an understandable res- negative response to it because unlike almost all other health interventions. You're giving a vaccine to someone who is most of the time not sick, and and often you're giving it to a child. And in the old days, when you were actually giving them, you know, some inert, attenuated version of the killer virus or a close cousin of the killer virus, the idea of taking a perfectly healthy person and injecting them with a virus that is somehow related to a deadly pathogen. Um, rubbed people the wrong way. I mean, it's different from my child is sick, give him some kind of medicine to make him better. It's like my child is perfectly healthy. Why are we doing this? And that that has just always been this fundamental tension with vaccines. Now, today, actually, you know, when you look at particularly the mRNA vaccines, um, you know, it, it never made sense as an argument because statistically it was clear it was better for your child's health and the long run for society's health to vaccinate. Today, the mRNA vaccine, you know, doesn't even have any version of the virus. Um, it's just a little software instruction set to instruct your cells to make the, uh, kind of a simulation of the spike protein. Um, and so they're incredibly safe. Um, and that that's actually one of my favorite moments in the show where I interviewed Fauci, uh, Dr. Fauci, our public health hero over here. And I interviewed him on the day that the Moderna vaccine efficacy numbers came back and they were just off the charts. He was so excited. He was like bouncing when he came into the room to be interviewed. And in in the show, he's quoted, he says, you know, if you had told me 20 years ago that we could make a vaccine without even having the virus, which is what they did basically in, in January and February of 2020, they hadn't even gotten hold of a virus yet, but they had the 
the genome sequence of it. And so they could design a vaccine without having the virus in hand. He said, if you told me that 20 years ago, I would have said, you're insane. That's not possible. But here we are. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think that one of the arguments I make in the book um, is that if you look back in the 19th century, one of the single most important breakthroughs in terms of human health in the 20th century was the discovery that soil was alive, that soil wasn't just a bunch of ground up rocks, but that it had a kind of metabolism. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. They're remarkable leaps, and, and there are so many highlighted in, in, your, in your book and your program. But I thought um, something that would be great to talk about is the um, vein of inequality that runs across a lot of these uh, innovations and those who um, were not you know, disenfranchised or not powerful and were exploited even to make these advances possible. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a major theme. It's a, it, 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 I think it's that it's most powerful in, um, in the vaccines episode, which is both the story of tremendous triumph and also, you know, kind of the highs and the lows of medical progress. Um, this technique that originally preceded vaccination, which is related to it, um, and was an important inspiration for it, is is variolation. Um, a variolation developed outside of the West. It was not the product of Enlightenment science. It was probably independently developed in China and Africa and India and places like that. And it came to the United States through the slave trade. And uh, David Oloshoga in the show tells this story about... Um, Cotton Mather, the influential New England um, preacher, who was also kind of an amateur scientist and also was part of the Salem witch trials. He had a complicated relationship to science and reason. Uh, he, he learned from one of the enslaved Africans that he owned um, that this, this slave, one smith, um, was immune to smallpox because he had been variolated, basically been deliberately exposed to a small amount of the virus. And Mather got very interested in that, and that was one of the reasons why variolation came to the United States through the slave trade. And similarly, um, <clears throat> about 100 years later, Thomas Jefferson, while he was president, he became a big advocate for vaccines, which was good. And was he, Jefferson, to his credit, had a lot of interest in science and new ideas. Um, and so he actually conducted some of the very first 
drug trials, in a sense, for the, the smallpox vaccine while he was president. Like he just did it in his spare time in Monticello. So on the one hand, the Jefferson story is, you know, it's a positive one. On the other hand, the first people that he put into his drug trial for the vaccines were his slaves. Um, and that just kind of runs throughout the history that we have, you know, this mix of visionary ideas that lead to human progress bound up in, you know, kind of pathways of exploitation that are that are very hard to shake. Absolutely. Staying in the realm of, of d- disease, and you've written about cholera before, and cholera um, obviously features in this as a scourge of uh, terrible disease. Um, but the way you come at it is through the lens of data. And I wanted to ask about mm. William Farr and John Snow. What can you say about that sort of groundbreaking work they were doing? Yeah, I, so I had written this book many, many years ago, The Ghost Map, about Jon Snow, who solved the mystery, and it was a true mystery, of, of where why people were getting sick from cholera. And it was a great killer in the 19th century, a terrible killer, I should say, probably, um, and particularly in big cities. And people at the time thought that cholera was in the air, that it was, this was known as the miasma theory of disease, and they thought it was effectively the result of the terrible smells in big cities like London and New York which was a reasonable assumption to make because London was probably the smelliest city in the world at that point. It had grown at such incredible speed um, that, you know, it was the biggest city the world had ever seen, two and a half million people um, and no real waste removal system. And, you know, people had cesspools in their basements. We could get incredibly gross here if we want to describe this. Um, and so it seemed logical that like, well, there's all this stink in the air. It must be bad for you. But in fact, it was related to the waste, but it was basically the drinking water was getting contaminated um, because there wasn't proper waste removal systems and people would flush all their waste into the Thames and then they would drink out of the Thames and they would get cholera. Cholera is caused by a bacterium. Um, and what's so fascinating about this story, and this was true for, for both Snow, who was a local doctor in Soho in London, and then Farr, who ran um, the kind of statistics of health in the city, and he would release these mortality reports. Um, so he was a, the official statistician, basically, for, for England and Wales. Um, and between the two of them, they, they were amassing amazing amounts of data. Um, and Snow had come up with this idea that cholera was, was a waterborne disease, and he tried to find it by analyzing what he believed to be contaminated water. But in fact, he couldn't see this organism because the microscopes of the day were just not powerful enough. Um, And so he had to see it indirectly through data. And he basically famously collected um, data uh, around an outbreak in Soho that killed about 10% of the neighborhood in just a couple of weeks, a terrible outbreak. And he analyzed where people were getting their water and he proved that a, a well in the middle of Soho had actually gotten contaminated, and that's why people were dying. And so that ultimately was enough to convince the authorities, and eventually William Farr, who actually was a longtime believer in the miasma theory, um, that cholera was in the water. And that led to the, create, the building of the London sewers, which is an amazing engineering achievement in the 19th century. And by 1866, there's kind of a final cholera outbreak in, in the east end of London, which Farr helps to kind of solve. Snow is dead by this point. Um, And that's the last outbreak of cholera uh, that London has experienced to this day. So 
it's an amazing achievement because they did it all without being able to actually see the pathogen. It, it, cholera was not observed under a microscope until the 1870s, but they, they could do it by looking at the numbers. Right. Um, so is it fair to say then that those are kind of more direct, direct um, things more directly responsible for um, that very low life expectancy? Yeah. But there are other more indirect and less obvious causes that are explored. And, and one I just thought was so... I mean, it makes total sense when you read it, but um, I was so surprised to read about soil science and that kind of innovation and how much impact that can have. Yeah, I. this is, you know, this is the stuff I, I love to write about where you have an innovation in one field that there are a bunch of scientists or, you know, creative people trying to solve a problem in one field and or come up with a new technology, whatever they're trying to do. And it ends up indirectly opening up new doors of possibility in seemingly unrelated fields. So just the history is filled with these, these kinds of stories. And, and I, I think that one of the arguments I make in the book um, is that if you look back in the 19th century, one of the single most important breakthroughs in terms of human health in the 20th century was the discovery that soil was alive, that soil wasn't just a bunch of ground up rocks, but that it had a kind of metabolism that was filled with organisms, that live soil, when you can plant something in the soil, that's because the soil is teeming with, with you know, these, these little organisms that are doing the work um, and, the, and the kind of the nitrogen cycle and all that stuff that, that got discovered. That ended up being crucial for two reasons. The first is pretty obvious. It, it led people to understand how fertilization works which then, once they understood the chemistry of that, they could eventually, in the early 20th century, invent artificial fertilizer, um, which was an offshoot of the weapons development too, because you know this is the, 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 the chemistry is very similar. And so that leads to a, a major um, increase in the productivity of, of croplands around the world. Once you had artificial fertilizer, um, you, you could, you could grow just the, the the land became much more productive, and that enabled us to feed a, a growing population. And the population went from two billion to about eight billion today over the course of that century. And if we had not increased the fecundity of the land during that period, we would have never we would have mass starvation. Um, so soil science was important there. The other side of it is that soil science was important in the development of penicillin and antibiotics because. You know, penicillin is a mold, right? And and these molds, starting with Fleming and then with with other people, that began to realize that these molds had developed interesting antibacterial resistance, just living in the earth, filled surrounded by, you know, to them deadly microbes that were threatening their lives. And so the penicillin mold evolved this strategy of killing off bacteria. And so people began to think, well, listen, if that this one penicillin mold could do it, maybe the earth is filled with other molds that might make even better drugs. And so during World War II, actually, they sent soldiers all around the world as they're racing to develop penicillin. They sent them off uh, collecting soil. Like in the middle of the war, they would grab soil samples and take them back to the United States, and they would analyze them and see if they could find promising uh, future antibiotics. And so you get two things. The reduction of famine in the 20th century is a huge lifesaver. Um, and the invention of antibiotics is probably the single most important medical advance of the 20th century. And both of them have this common denominator of understanding the metabolism of soil that was developed in the 19th century. Right. That's quite the double whammy there. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and what's funny about it, if you'd gone back to those soil scientists in 1850 and said, you're going you're gonna to play a major role in extending the human lifespan in the next century, they would have said, what are you talking about? I'm just studying these little organisms here. I don't know what you're Right. What you well, <laughs> I mean, if they wouldn't have thought what they were doing, if we can perhaps look ahead then, I know we're obviously a history podcast, but um, you've written that this project, it's not, you've said it's not a victory lap and, and there are significant health gaps still to be addressed. Um, and where, where looking ahead, where are the next campaigns being fought? Where are the next turning points coming from, if you can say such a thing? Well, there's a lot. It's, it's going to be a very interesting few decades, I think. Um, we've seen one. I mean, the mRNA platform is an, is an incredible breakthrough, as, as we've kind of alluded, and there's a lot more to come from that. Um, and that, you know, we, we could very well face more lethal and more contagious um, outbreaks. The world is an increasingly connected place. Um, and so, you know, COVID was incredibly deadly, but, um, you know, it, the, the H1N1 virus that caused the great influenza was far deadlier and killed much younger people. And so knowing that we can produce a vaccine that quickly is is an enormous advance for us, and it may enable other kinds of treatments as well. Immunotherapy in battling cancer is an amazing new breakthrough. And it's similar to vaccines in the sense that you are not, you're solving the problem of cancer by not through some outward attack of radiation or chemotherapy, but by training the immune system to fight the cancer itself, which your immune system does all the time. It's constantly combating rogue runaway cancer cells. It just gets tricked by some cancer cells into ignoring them. Um, and so this is a kind of immunotherapy is a kind of counter trick where you, you make those cancer cells visible again to the immune system. And then your immune system can do it on its own. So it's a much more robust way of solving it. And then, I mean, the only other thing I'd mention, there's much more to say is we're just now beginning to think about what machine learning is going to be able to do in terms of developing new compounds, um, you know, just in an afternoon running through, you know, a, a million different molecular combinations to maybe produce a new antibiotic um, or some new treatment for Alzheimer's. Um, and there's just an ability to explore combinations at tremendous scale that we've never had before. And the, that, that's the kind of problem solving and kind of possibility space exploring that computers do incredibly well now. Um, and, and so I think we're going to see some, some major returns from that kind of investment. Well, the, the, your book and this program does give such fascinating historical context to so many of these conversations. And and I, I do encourage all of our listeners to check out the program. Um, it's uh, Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer. And uh, Stephen's book is of the same title, published by Riverhead Books, and it's out now. Uh, and Stephen, thank you so much for your time in talking to us about this today. I always enjoy coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That was Stephen Johnson. Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer continues in the UK on BBC4 at 10pm on the 1st of June. The episodes released so far are available on BBC iPlayer and it's also streaming in the US on PBS. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on the golden age of piracy. Piracy.